0: Hey everybody, here I am back in the dining room, chalkboard, lecture hall uh, area, remote lecture hall area. Self-quarantine count-up, we're on day 20. Uh, tomorrow is the end of the third week. It's uh, no cabin craze yet. I hope everybody's feeling the same way. All right, I'm gonna just jump right in today and not uh, linger on the situation we all find ourselves in, but instead talk about avenues of political reform. Uh, I definitely mentioned these four avenues on the previous lecture, I almost said Tuesday, uh, on the previous lecture, and today I'm going to uh, deepen sort of the discussion of what are the different ways of uh, achieving political reform. First, a reminder, the definition of political reform is that it's a change in the political system itself, uh, and the political system itself is made up of um, rules, procedures, and institutions, so it's a change in rules, procedures, or institutions. Uh, and the institutions themselves have all kinds of features, like rules are, you know, that's basically regulations. You know. uh, so for example, you can't donate more than a thousand dollars to a political candidate in the one election cycle, that's a rule. A procedure is That uh, on the first Tuesday in November is the only time that you get to go to a polling place and you uh, fill out a paper ballot, or that you have two weeks to go to the polling place uh, and you fill out and you tap an electronic screen. Those are procedures. Um, (coughs) uh, Institutions are Congress is an institution, the executive branch is an institution, but also specifics of the institution, so the House of Representatives. And one of the things about institutions is that they themselves also have rules and procedures that are in place to govern those, those particular institutions. So I don't probably need to go into too much description of what the political system is, but political reform means changing something about the system itself. All other forms of reform, healthcare reform, immigration reform, tax reform, all of that takes place through the political system. So political reform is a foundational change to the way politics themselves and policy making are conducted. So, uh, it's a pretty big thing and it's actually done while some of the processes of achieving political reform and some of the factors are similar, uh, it's actually done in a pretty different way. So, um, what are the avenues of change? Well, the political system itself is built, the rules, procedures, and institutions is built through a multi-stage process in fact, there are four ways in which the political system is built. And so of course there are four avenues uh, for changing it because uh, it's the building and then the rebuilding. So the same avenues that are used to build the political system are used to reform the political system. So first I'm going to talk about how the political system is created and then that will really lead naturally into the four avenues uh, for reforming it. So a political system, doesn't exist in nature. It is created. It's a set of rules, procedures, and institutions that are made up by people. Um, so the first thing that has to be done in order to have a political system at all well is to have a foundational moment. And that foundational moment is the Constitution. So the very first thing that happens is we get Constitution writing. And what the Constitution itself does. Is it provides the basic structure. I actually have lecture notes here today on a clipboard, so instead of looking down at them, which might make you think that I'm looking down at my cat or something, or, or seeing that there's a stain on the rug, which I'm not looking at my cat and I think there actually is a stain on the rug. Um, but here's here's my notes. So it seems a little strange to have notes on the clipboard, but it also seems very strange to be lecturing to an iPhone uh, in my dining room, so I'm just going to go with it. Uh, So the Constitution creates the basic structures, the roles, institutions, and powers. And what's interesting about a Constitution is that a Constitution is while it is foundational, you can't have anything else, so I'm leaving space over here, you can't have anything else before you have uh, a constitution. I mean, you can, right? Political systems can happen, can function purely on tradition, without any kind of constitution. Actually, Great Britain has a non-constitutional uh, system, but we're talking about the United States, and in every, at every level, from the city uh, charter through the United States Constitution and through state constitutions and county charters, uh, we actually have written constitutions. Uh, So, the Constitution is the foundational document. It creates the basic structure, but it also has a wide variety of detail involved. Mostly, constitutions provide the big picture, but sometimes they get very specific. So, for example, the U.S. Constitution, uh, in terms of the roles uh, and institutions, we have an executive branch, and the executive branch has only two constitutional officers in it the president and the vice president. Um, and the way that the president and the vice president are selected is through the Electoral College, which actually is a very detailed procedure. Now, it's not so detailed that it doesn't need further elaboration in order to be able to be used in the real world, um, and that's one of the things that has to happen next, is that the basic structure has to uh, be elaborated on to, uh, in order to make it actually functional. So what we get after constitution writing is we get elaboration, That allows it to function and that happens through there's two avenues one of them is statutory and statutes are written by the legislature Um, and the other one is through direct democracy and these belong in the same box because they basically both do the same thing they create laws these are created by uh, almost entirely Bicameral legislatures. Uh, we have a couple of unicameral legislatures uh, in the United States. And then direct democracy is created through initiative and referendum. And this is a direct vote of the people. These both create laws that elaborate on the basic structure and make it, make it it's possible for the, the basic structure to function. Even the most detailed constitution will require at least minimal elaboration to become functional. So, elaboration to function. So, again, with the example of the Electoral College, it's a pretty detailed portion. In fact, a, a big chunk of Article II of the U.S. Constitution is given over to describing the electoral college and then the 12th amendment is also uh, very wor- very wordy for a constitutional amendment r- describing the procedures and the back of procedures the house of representatives gets to vote if there's not a clear majority and they get to vote by state and there's there's actually quite a bit of detail in that section as opposed to the very vague there's a president and a vice president and then some of the powers like the, you know the vice president it's very little it just says very little in the original constitution there is a vice president and the vice president is the president of the Senate and casts the tie-breaking vote, and that's really it, right? What the vice president does is largely up to political practice and uh, precedent and uh, traditions that have built up, as well as sort of ways that different vice presidents or presidential administrations have been able to push forward the role of the vice president. But very little is said there. Um, a lot is said about the Electoral College. Yet, in order to have a presidential election, we still need, actually, quite a bit, a lot of laws. Uh, state laws that one tell how it is that the state decides what to do with its electoral votes. We know from the Constitution, the basic structure, that each state gets a number of electoral votes that's equal to its House and Senate seats. So basically, it's House seats plus two. Um, so it gets that. So, Oregon, we have five House seats. That means that we're entitled to seven electoral votes. But how do those votes get given or distributed? Uh, through state laws. Uh, and for the most part, uh, in terms of electoral law, like electoral college, it's mostly statutes. Um, the direct, I'll talk a little bit later about how direct democracy differs from the statutory uh, avenue because there are limitations. This is both uh, more open and more limited uh, form of, of reform. But I want to I want to build things up. So largely, things get built up through the statutory means. Right. That's the main way of building the system, and this is an avenue. For uh, for reform, this is also an avenue for reform, but most systems don't get built through direct democracy. Uh, so, Oregon, our laws are that we have, you know, uh, mail-in ballots. Uh, we have our primary on a particular day in May. We have our general election is uh, essentially, you know, all one day. Your ballot has to be in, not just postmarked, but in by uh, whatever time, 8 p.m. election day. And our electoral votes are given out on a winner-take-all basis. So whoever gets the most votes, whichever candidate gets the most votes, all of the Electoral College votes from Oregon go to that state. Now, most states have that. In fact, 48 states have a winner-take-all system. Nebraska and Maine uh, have a proportional system where the winner of the statewide vote gets the two Electoral College votes. And then all of the other Electoral College votes in that state are given out on a district-by-district basis. So uh, Nebraska, I think, has two districts. And so whoever wins one district gets that electoral vote, whoever wins the other congressional district gets that electoral vote, and so it's possible to divide it. And maybe they have five. Maine and Nebraska, I think they have four and five. I don't know exactly. It's not important for, this, for the purpose of this lecture. What's important is that the basic structure, even when it's detailed, and it very rarely is detailed, it's usually very schematic, right? It's a blueprint. The, the Constitution provides a basic blueprint. And we need laws in order to be able to make it active. And in fact, the dominant set of procedures, rules uh, that govern our political system come to us through the laws. So what's interesting is that the political system itself is creating the nature of the political system. Uh, Because constitutions, even longer ones, right? The U.S. Constitution is notably short. It's about 5,000 words. It's way shorter than uh, any of the 50 state constitutions. But even the really long state constitutions, still, you can't create an entire political system in a single document. You wouldn't even want to, uh, because there's a lot of decisions that need to get made and constitutions are harder to change than laws are harder to change. But one of the interesting things to note about a a democratic political system is that the system itself is built by using the system. So the constitution establishes a legislature and then the legislature actually does a ton of the building of that system and in fact in our uh, constitutional system not only does Congress get to set and the state legislatures particularly get to set a lot of election laws uh, both houses of Congress get to decide their own rules of procedure so the reason why there's a filibuster in the Senate and not in the House is because the Senate decided that it wants to have one and the House decided it wants to not have one and the filibuster has been getting whittled down and it's useful its use Uh, each time the Senate changes its rules about the filibuster. So we have a political system where the legislature is self-governing, and in in fact that's fundamental to a political system is that the Constitution, which is itself a political act, right, it's politics, it's sort of extraordinary politics creating a a container in which the political system will then operate, but that container is still just at the the broadest level, that container has to be filled. at this point, and really way earlier than this point, uh, we had a full-fledged, fully regulated, fully described political system. So there's no undone tasks. But at the beginning of creating a political system, when a state gets a new constitution, for example, or when uh, you know, there's, a, there's a brand new country, if we're talking not just about the United States, uh, there's, a, there's a moment, and it could be a long moment, it could be a decade long, where the political system is being built up through uh, laws. And in fact, we still have the potential always for our uh, Congress to be creating a political system. So in the 1960s, or excuse me, creating not a political system, creating parts of the political system. So for example, in the 1960s, uh, Congress created a number of different cabinet departments, the Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services, are the two that I know of, it might have been I think, the Department of Energy was created in the 1970s. But basically, our executive branch was enlarged Now we've also had our executive branch be reorganized with the Homeland Security Act, took things that existed and and moved them around. The Homeland Security Act was an act of political reform. The uh, creation of the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services was essentially an expansion of our political system into places that it didn't exist before. The federal government wasn't involved in uh, forming or implementing any kind of uh, educational policy or health and human services, uh, certain health and human services policies. So it's always possible to expand the political system, but for the most part, at this moment and for a really long time, uh, our political system has occupied all of the space, and so now if we're going to do any kind of uh, changing of the system, it's going to happen through reform. But the at least at this, uh, here, we have a third thing, I have a third uh, um, stage to indicate, but You should be able to see that these are avenues of reform. If this is how you build a political system, this is how you rebuild and how you reform the political system. Uh, At this level, here we have the basic structure, this is the details. what is kind of astounding about a democratic political system is that there are a ton of details. You would just think, okay, we have an executive, a legislature and a judiciary, we have an electoral system and uh, it's really how complicated it is it? There aren't that many moving parts. Well, there aren't that many machines. There's the electoral system, uh, which itself is a president or an executive electoral system and a, uh, a uh, judicial electoral system, at least at the state level where when, judges are elected, and a legislative electoral system, and then we have the three branches. So it's not a lot of machines, but each of those machines has a lot of moving parts for sure and then sometimes the interconnections between those machines have some moving parts too. Like we have legislative elections and then when does the newly elected legislature get to uh, take over and what happens between in the, what's called the lame duck period, what happens in between. Those are all of the details. Now. I will not say that every single detail is done with a statutory or direct democratic uh, approach. That the, there's nothing but laws. There are also, sometimes, there are traditions that are kind of these hazy things that are done in the cracks that aren't in any way legislated. Uh, those, however, are also because they kind of fill the available space for these practices they are available for reform uh, in the sense that uh, there could be a new law that actually makes that tradition either institutionalizes that tradition or makes that tradition no longer possible Uh, one of the traditions that the united states had for a really long time was that presidents wouldn't run for re-election after a second term that tradition was set by uh, George Washington when he declined to run for a third term, and it was followed by every president until Franklin Roosevelt, um, even though sometimes maybe it would have been a good idea for them to run for a third term, or maybe they would have, it would have been an, an excellent time. Uh, there was certainly no constitutional or uh, statutory barrier to running a, for a third term, as Franklin Roosevelt demonstrated, by doing it. He can break any laws or any constitutional uh, procedures, he broke a, a tradition, a norm. And quickly, that tradition was seen as very important, and the 20-somethingth Amendment, 23rd, 24th, I really ought to know these things, but I don't. Anyway, the two-term limit for the president, that, that was turned from a tradition into, because it was done through a constitutional amendment, into part of the basic structure. Uh, so now, it's not up to presidents to decide whether or not they're going to follow. tradition there are lots of traditions actually that that are not in fact uh, either legally or constitutionally mandated uh, that have a lot of momentum now i'll give you an example of a tradition that is actually legally mandated but it seems to have more power than that it seems to be constitutionally mandated and that's the size of the supreme court the U.S. Supreme Court is nine justices, and where does that number come from? I think a lot of people actually think that's in the Constitution. It seems like such a foundationally important uh, thing that it ought to be in the Constitution, but it's not. It's actually a result of a statutory choice that was last made in the 1860s uh, when the Supreme Court was actually re- uh, reduced from 10 to nine. And there was all kinds of politics in the changing of the size of the of the Supreme Court during the uh, Civil War era, it went from 9 to 8, up to 10, and then back down to 9. That kind of thing is totally permissible constitutionally. But one of the traditions that we have, it's it's legally uh, mandated, 9 justices, is the law. It's written uh, in a statute. But it seems sacrosanct. The idea of expanding the Supreme Court seems like it goes fundamentally against the constitutional order. One of the barriers to political reform is the official structures through which political changes have to be made. But another one of the obstacles is tradition. Uh, Even when you have an avenue, an opportunity, which, you know, let's say that you have a Democratic president and two Democratic, uh, and a democratically controlled Congress, Uh, so we have the uh, House of Representatives and the Senate are in the hands of the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party and the leadership and the president, they want to increase the size of the Supreme Court to give that president and that democratically controlled senate, the chance to add more liberal justices to either rebalance the court or to give uh, a liberal majority. And this is actually something that's been, that was talked about earlier in the presidential campaign. uh, The democratic candidates, many of them, or several of them at least, were talking about uh, this particular idea. That idea, is technically possible. There's nothing in the constitution that says you can't do it. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It only requires uh, changing a law if you have uh, a party that has control of both Houses of Congress and the President, it, you would think that there's a smooth path. But the idea of monkeying with the Supreme Court in that way, and that even just using the word monkeying makes it seem, it, I'm, I'm, you know that's what people would feel like it was doing. Even though it's not monkeying, it's legitimate political reform. It seems like it's monkeying because this tradition lurks in the background. But honestly, most of the things that uh, govern our political system are done through laws, not through unlegislated uh, tradition. There are some corners where there is just tradition. Um, so this is all the details: the rules, the roles, the structure, the procedures, everything. Right? Uh, for example, in the electoral system, and this is different state by state. Uh, how can you get an absentee ballot? Some states have uh, no excuse absentee ballots. You can just register with the uh, uh, with the state and say, I just want an absentee ballot every time. Other states require you to actually have a a legitimate excuse and say well I'm on military service I'm going to be or I'm a college student I'm going to be out of state or I'm a business person who frequently travels so some states allow you to just get an absentee ballot which essentially means that you get to turn your voting habits into a vote by mail uh, system which Oregon has uh, statewide other states require you to have an excuse that's just one of like really I hate to use the word literally but literally thousands of choices that are made at the statutory level uh, that uh, determine how our political system functions. So the bulk of things happen here. Our political system has been built up through our political system. Our democratic processes have been democratically decided. You, within the boundaries, and again, some of the very specific details that are set by the Constitution, but uh, it mostly happens here. Now the third avenue is uh, um, judicial review. And what judicial review means, and I'll draw an arrow here, is because in our constitutional system, every act of the government, or whether it be, I shouldn't say the government, every act of the political branches, the legislature and the judiciary uh, are, excuse me, the legislature and the executive, are subject to judicial review. And judicial review determines whether or not these uh, laws that have been passed are constitutional or not. So judicial review connects the Constitution writing period with what has gone on as the necessary elaboration function. So the Constitution sets the basic structure, leaves a lot of questions unanswered. The democratic system that it forms answers a lot of those questions. But the Constitution is still looms in the background of that. And the arbiter of these constitutional questions is the judicial branch. So uh, ultimately, it's the Supreme Court. It won't always be the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court won't get to every case. But in political reform, it, when there are uh, uh, questions of the legitimacy of either statutory or direct democratic changes to the system. Those are the kinds of things, because they are so foundational, that will tend to get to the Supreme Court. But it doesn't have to be. It could be that uh, it just is ruled on by an appellate court that's below the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denies the uh, appeal and the standing, the ruling of the appellate court stands. It's still the judicial branch exercising judicial review. Now, there is a big difference between what the ju- what the judiciary can do and what uh, is done through laws because here anything is possible. Uh, There, whatever, within the bounds, I shouldn't say anything, but within the bounds of the constitutional structure, all choices are available. Uh, And so policy can be made directly here. Judicial review is a more indirect policy because what judicial review involves is uh, rejections and then there are sometimes, often, requirements, but the judiciary doesn't usually directly make policy. So, for example, there'll be a law passed by uh, the legislature, and that law will just will stick to an issue that we're going to deal with in this class, ca- campaign finance, um, and so uh, the legislature says, okay, you can't spend money on this, right? You can't spend your own personal wealth on campaigns. You, you, you personally have to abide by campaign donation limits. That's a choice that's made by the legislature. The court will then be called on, not always, because some questions don't get litigated, but again, in political reform, because it's so foundational, any change is going to probably be litigated. Um, the court will then have to say, not, well, what do we think should be done, but is this law constitutional or not so it's a binary power it's an accept or reject power so what we're getting here is yes no so when congress says you can't spend your own personal wealth beyond normal campaign donation limits on your campaign the court can either say "Yep, yeah, that's cool or it can reject that but the court cannot decide anything more than that uh, Whereas back at the legislative stage, for example, you know, a bill is proposed that caps personal expenditures at the regular donation limit. Someone else in the legislature might say, well, you know, that's a little too restrictive. Why don't we cap it at five times or ten times? If the normal donation limit is $3,000, candidates can spend up to five times that $15,000 on their own campaigns of their own personal wealth. Uh, and someone else might say, well, why not make it 10? Or, you know, and then, then there's all that negotiating. All of the different answers are possible. Any, any detail uh, can be negotiated up or down. Once a law has been passed, and we're at the judicial uh, level, the only thing that can be done is to say yes or no to that particular thing. The, the court can't say, OK, that's too restrictive. But 10 times wouldn't be too restrictive, so we're going to enact that. Um, However, the requirements that the court sets for future legislation will, these are where uh, we develop legal principles. And what those legal principles do is they guide further legislation. And what they actually technically do is they guide future Uh, um, judicial rulings. They say, okay, anytime a law like this comes up before us, here are the principles that we're going to apply and that we believe that the lower courts ought to apply. So, essentially, because they're telling future courts what should be done, what kind of analysis should be used in deciding whether we're going to reject or accept a legislative act, um, legislatures and anybody who's running, who's creating a ballot measure, would be very wise to pay attention to these requirements so that their new law, which is tremendously difficult and frustrating to get passed, uh, doesn't get similarly struck down. So the court's not gonna say, okay, this law capping personal expenditures at the regular donation amount uh, is unconstitutional, but 10 times is fine. So the new law now is 10 times. Courts can't do that kind of thing. There are a couple of cases where uh, courts, and we'll talk about this later in, in, in the term, but where courts can actually make that kind of specific detailed policy-making uh, decision. But that is far from the norm. It's a very rare case, and we'll, we'll talk about when that's the case. Um, but by and large, it's an accept or reject. And, but then it can say that in the, in the majority ruling, here's the criteria that we use for rejecting this. And these criteria are such that, you know, we can see, they won't, again, give a detailed answer like, okay, if we get a law back in five years that has a 10 times the normal donation cap, we'll think that's cool. Uh, They're not gonna be that specific, but they will indicate that there is a balancing act, that uh, competing values are being balanced here. Uh, uh, personal freedom is being balanced with the regulation of the democratic society. This particular piece of legislation, which we're we're calling unconstitutional, overbalances it. And uh, here are the principles that we're gonna use in the future for deciding whether a a legitimate balance has been struck or not. So courts can give, with these requirements uh, for future uh, judicial action, they can essentially give signals and hints back To uh, the statutory uh, avenue to say okay these are the things that are gonna be fine however lots of times what happens and this is the case with a big uh, case that we're gonna look at this term Citizens United versus FEC there's a big piece of legislation that gets passed the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act and the Supreme Court rejects a chunk of it not all of it but a chunk of it and then there's no even though right afterwards there was some noise about passing a new law that would uh, you know uh, get around Citizens United ruling, or that would address its constitutional concerns while sort of continuing to regulate the uh, the electoral system in the way that the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act intended originally, that never happened. So one of the problems with uh, the statutory avenue is that it's very burdensome. Right, our bicameral legislature is status quo oriented. and what that means is that this while this is the primary avenue through which the details are built up it's also a very difficult avenue to make change so if the court takes a law and strikes it down or strikes down a portion of it the you know theoretically a new law that meets the requirements can easily and readily be passed but in reality the court's actions using judicial review will be the final word on that policy. So we have essentially a huge uh, pool of unregulated, dark money, super PACs and black box organizations that don't have to reveal their donors, that don't have to show uh, what, they're, what they're spending their money on, that can, that can do what are known as campaign activities, They can't coordinate with campaigns, But they can spend money advocating for or against the election of particular candidates or particular ballot measures without any kind of uh, information being given out. Because of what the Supreme Court says in Citizens United, that's the new policy. It's a negative act because all they did was clear out rules. But when you clear out rules and you create a black box, uh, that black box is the system right? So the Supreme Court didn't intend, and the justices who wrote the opinion, uh, the Chief Justice, wrote, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, and the, and the other justices who signed on to it and who wrote concurring opinions, they weren't saying, oh, this is smart policy. This is a good way to organize a democratic system. Uh, because they don't get to do that. Uh, judicial review is essentially a, it, it's a negative power. It's the ability to say no without, in most cases, then saying something new. But when you can say no, that comes with it an implied positive power, but one that you don't control. So uh, the Roberts Court strikes down significant portions of the the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, and that creates a a huge unregulated portion of our electoral system. The Roberts Court might recognize that there are problems with a huge unregulated system, that the way that super PACs function, that the way this financial black box uh, um, exists, creates dysfunctions for our democratic system, but the court can't say, okay, here are the regulations that we should put into place to make sure that this uh, people can actually uh, spend money on electioneering activities as the First Amendment demands, at least according to their interpretation. But we're going to have these put these financial disclosures and these regulatory disclosures in place. The court doesn't get to make that kind of policy. Insofar as the court leaves room, with its sort of its 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 requirements the, the the way it describes how the ruling was made and how future rulings will be made leaves room for the legislature to do that but when that new legislation doesn't follow a court ruling that strikes down something then that's now a frontier it's an unregulated frontier in our political system that is political reform though and i i want to sort of move backwards through this process to talk about political reform one of the avenues of political reform is the judicial avenue, and the if you are a reformer who doesn't like something that's in our system, uh, a relatively uh, excuse me, an avenue with a relatively high level of success as well as low costs in terms of resource input uh, is to challenge a law that uh, you think should be gotten rid of, that you want to reform by getting rid of in the courts. Now, it's really, really a very simple thing because what do you need to do this? How do you succeed? What are the factors of success? I'm going to put this over here. The factors of success. To succeed at the judicial level, what you need is you need a majority of justices. Five out of nine people on the Supreme Court. And again, I'll leave out of, uh, leave out of this the consideration that sometimes the Supreme Court's not the last court that rules on it. Let's just stick with that particular case. You need five people to agree that this law or regulation is unconstitutional for it to go away. And that means that there's a pretty clear and very, I would say, easy in terms of conceptually, easy pathway to achieving political reform. And the judicial avenue is absolutely an avenue of a high rate of success for political reformers. Here's something wrong with our system. We're gonna challenge it on constitutional grounds, and we win, and the system now looks different. Um, And this this has been happening, this has happened for a really long time. This this has happened for almost the entire uh, US history, uh, since judicial review was claimed by the Supreme Court after the Marbury versus Madison ruling in 1803, political reformers have used the courts, particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, as an avenue for getting rid of uh, political procedures that they think are unfair. Now, the, it's, it has a high level of success, and it's actually one of the, of the four. It's the second easiest, right? The easiest is direct democracy. It's the second easiest, but it also is the most limited for two reasons. One is that you can only challenge political uh, uh, features of the political system that you can make a constitutional argument are uh, unconstitutional. So if there's something you don't like in the political system, for example, you don't like the fact that legislators can get elected time after time after time, and we have these people serving in the legislature for 20 and 30 years. if you don't like that, there's no judicial avenue for uh, redress of that particular grievance because the basic structure of the Constitution, there's no constitutional provision that would get a court to reject that. In fact, there's not even any law to challenge in the first place because this is the, a, 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 an example of a part of our system where there is no law. There is just the tradition which is that is. If you want to run again, you just run again. You keep running. And, and the only thing that stops you is that you're sick of the political system or you die. Uh, or, and, or you lose. Uh, there's nothing to challenge. And even if there were a law to challenge, let's say that the state of Oregon passed a right-to-run law uh, saying that all members of elected offices um, are allowed to run for unlimited terms. You, you challenge that in the court and What's your constitutional basis? What argument are you going to be able to make? You can't. So part of the factors for your success is one, you need a majority of justices, but what you also need is you need constitutional grounds. There are a couple of other pieces of success though. You need a constitutional basis, but then what you also need is you need precedent and or the theory of the Constitution that is held by five or more justices to align with your reform. So you need precedent and theory. Because that's how court rulings go down. Courts are essentially asking a straightforward question. Is this law? constitutional well all right we have to go back to the actual written constitution uh, precedent is relevant because other co- court cases will have ruled on either the, exactly the same constitutional uh, provision or a or a similar one or a related one and the courts tend to want to not change their rulings just drastically saying yeah you know we got it wrong 10 years ago let's do it again let's flip it um that does happen and it's happened a couple important times most noteworthy Brown versus Board of Education where the court just said, "No, nope, we're just rejecting Plessy versus Ferguson. We're not gonna take the normal route of judicial transformation, which is to tweak precedent, move, move, move very gradually. So you, you need to have precedent on your side, and then also the theory of the Constitution that five or more of the justices hold has to hold that the provision that you're looking at in the Constitution will be interpreted and understood in this particular context in the way that you need. And that's what the constitutional lawyers will do. So the, the lawyers and Citizens United, they said, okay, we're gonna make a First Amendment challenge because the First Amendment creates a basic structure where there's certain kinds of personal liberties and we think those personal liberties are being uh, betrayed by this particular piece of legislation, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Um, and so they go before the court and make that argument five of the nine justices have to agree that that's the correct interpretation of the First Amendment. And in fact, in the case of Citizens United, only five of the nine agreed that was the correct interpretation. The other four interpreted the First Amendment and its relationship to precedent and its relationship to this particular statute as giving the opposite ruling, that yes, it is okay, not no, it's not okay. Uh, so it's, this avenue of reform is really powerful because you can just get something swept aside uh, and it's relatively easy because even though court cases can take years to get to, to the court, actually in political time of, you know, 10 years isn't really that much, right? The, the, so the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act was passed in 2002, uh, Citizens United was 2010, eight years, that's a, you know, that's a pretty normal span of time. Eight years might sound like a lot, but really in political reform uh, terms or in any kind of major legislative uh, accomplishment terms. Eight years is pretty rapid. So the constitutional, excuse me, the judicial avenue of reform is relatively rapid, it is powerful, and it's easy in the sense that you need five people, just five people, right? But it's limited in its use. There has to be a law that you're challenging. There has to be a provision of the Constitution that's directly relevant to it, and Those five people have to share your view of how precedent and constitutional theory uh, align to reject that piece of our political system. So it's powerful, simple, but limited in its applicability. Uh, Powerful, fast, and simple, but limited in its applicability. Uh, So that's avenue of reform number one, the judicial avenue. definitely a pathway that's used with uh, success, and it does, the judicial avenue does have profound impacts on the way our political system functions. Uh, We're going to, in this class, look at two of the most profound uh, court rulings that have changed our political system, that achieved political reform, Citizens United and Baker versus Carr, uh, both of which, you know, created, uh, essentially, got rid of old rules that The effect of getting rid of those old rules was transformative in the way that that elections are carried out. In the case of Baker versus Carr, how uh, voters' power is no longer able to be uh, distributed unevenly, and in the case of Citizens United versus FEC, how it is that uh, people who are outside of official campaigns can interact with the democratic process, both pretty profoundly transformative. There have been a lot of other cases that we won't look at in this class. Uh, at the federal level as well as at the state level because states all have their own constitutions and their own statutory process that uh, have transformed our political system. So it's, it's a very legitimate avenue of political reform and, again, a very successful one. Now, I want to move backwards here. Uh, I haven't talked about direct democracy too much and I, I want to get to that right after I talk about the uh, statutory uh, avenue. The most frequent successes at creating our political system, at building it up, and I say successes, what I really mean is just uh, examples or instances, comes from the statutory avenue. Most of our political system is a result of laws that have been passed by legislatures, either by Congress or by state legislatures. It's just the vast majority of the rules, procedures, uh, and even some parts of the institutions uh, were decided this way. One of the things about the statutory realm is it's status quo-oriented. And if you take another class with me, I've talked about this at length, so I'm just going to sort of ask you at this moment to just accept as a, a stipulation that our legislative process, particularly the bicameral process, is status quo-oriented. In other words, it's very, very difficult to do anything that's different. Once a law has been passed, and that's a, it's a hard time to get it passed, It's even harder to change it. So political reform as an activity, if there's something you don't like about the political system and you want to change it, and the judicial avenue is not available to you because there's, one, there's not a constitutional provision you could use to win, or two, maybe there is, but the dominant view on the court goes on the wrong side of you, so the judicial avenue is unavailable to you The statutory avenue is in theory the most powerful avenue for you because it opens up everything and you can make a lot of detailed choices. Unlike when you go through the judicial route, not only do you have to have a constitutional provision to refer to and the president in theory have to align with what you want, you get a blunt ruling, you get a yes or no, you get a clearing out of things, you don't get get that second piece of policymaking, which is we're going to get rid of this and we're going to fill it with this. right? in in terms of language of uh, politics, repeal and replace. Judicial avenue gives you a repeal, and then the replace has to happen here. Uh, The statutory avenue gives you the opportunity to both repeal and replace, or just replace, or add, but uh, it's very difficult to do so. And most political reformers who seek political reform through this uh, statutory avenue find that it is extremely difficult and extraordinarily frustrating and uh, unlikely to be successful. Now, why is that? Uh, One, it's the bicameral legislature. Uh, When you take the legislative power and divide them into two groups of people who have two different constituencies, two different election terms, therefore two different sort of political styles of getting re-elected, it's going to be very difficult to get those two groups to come onto the same page secondly you have to have you have to as a party that has a political reform agenda you have to capture a majority in both of those houses which is more difficult than capturing just one house if you have a unicameral legislature so just functionally politically there is uh, a lot of difficulty this is where political reform shares its uh, shares traits with other forms of reform right healthcare reform is extraordinarily difficult because you have to have One party has to be in control of both houses of Congress and have the president, and there has to be enough political momentum to take action at that particular time. So it's very difficult to get big pieces of legislation. Political reform is the same way. There's an additional reason why the statutory avenue is very difficult. It's the second hardest, right? This is the third hardest or second easiest. This is the second hardest, and it's pretty close to how hard the constitutional uh, route is to use. It's the second hardest, And very difficult because the people making the decisions are themselves products of the existing political system. They are winners in the political system as it exists right now. And reformers are asking the people who are winning under the current system to change the current system. And that would be relatively foolish. Unless you could make a change that would make it even easier for you to be a winner. And that's not typically what political reformers are asking for. Political reformers are not looking to change the system to make it easier for people who are already winning to e- to win even further. Typically, what political reformers want is to open the political system to power and participation by groups uh, of people that have less of it than those political reformers think that they should. So, by uh, asking the people who are winners to make changes, you're almost always going to be asking to make changes that are detrimental to them. And while in theory, and with a good conscience, a lot of the people who are in this position to make these political reforms through the statutory avenue might say theoretically that would be a good thing, it's they're not necessarily going to do it. So one of the other examples that we're gonna deal with in this class of political reform, which is redistricting and uh, gerrymandering. Um, gerrymandering occurs because Uh, electoral maps are drawn by legislatures and Legislatures themselves are composed of people who get elected in those maps and so they're going to draw those maps in a way that benefits themselves and their parties the most if you're going to ask the legislature to get rid of uh, a power that it wields You're asking for something that's very difficult to ask political actors to do which is to hand over power for no reason, right? so uh, that's one of the reasons why gerrymandering has been fought in the courts, and you know uh, there is because there are laws that can be challenged, and there are constitutional provisions to point to. There is the possibility of getting rid of gerrymandering and getting rid of partisan redistricting uh, in at, in the judicial avenue. But at this moment, it's this part that hasn't f- followed through. Like the requirements, there's a law, there's a constitutional provision, there's an interpretation of the Constitution that allows. Uh, for gerrymandering to be, made, to, to be made unconstitutional, but there are not yet five justices who, are, who have a theory of the Constitution that uh, they're willing to actually then sweep aside these, these state laws. So then you're asking people who are winners in a system to change the nature of that system, and that's not really gonna happen. Uh, the easiest avenue of reform is the direct democratic avenue, uh, and it is a relatively new one. It's a, you know, a, at this point a little over 100 years old, so it's not so new anymore. It's about half of the age of the American experiment. But um, the direct democratic uh, role, or excuse me, avenue, is available because direct democracy does the same thing that the statutory avenue does. It sets details. There is, however, a difference. Uh, and it's an, it's, it, it's an important difference. Um, The difference is that laws can be large and vast and complex and have all kinds of policies built into them, Um, but most states, and Oregon is one of those states that has this, when we're talking about initiatives, which is when the people can actually take the initiative and put something on the ballot and have the people of that state vote on it, and the majority rules straight up, yes, no, uh, majority uh, rules in this, have single issue requirements. You can't put up a complex campaign finance reform bill through the initiative process. If you have a complex campaign finance initiative uh, policy, you either have to get it done through the statutory realm or you have to get it done as a referendum, and a referendum is partially statutory. A referendum is when the legislature has a piece of legislation, and instead of passing it or rejecting it itself, it says, here's a bill you, the people, decide on this whole bill. That's not a very powerful avenue of reform. It's actually close to the statutory reform and how powerful it is, so it's kind of like the second and a half uh, avenue of reform because the legislature is typically only gonna do this under a very specific set of conditions. Referendums are are relatively rare uh, occurrences, particularly in political reform. Uh, If you're a political reformer and you wanna change the rules that are governing how politicians right now win and lose, the initiative is your main avenue, but the initiative is limited in most cases to a single issue. It's also limited to the fact that you have to get a certain number of signatures, there are certain resources that are required, but actually that's relatively easy. Um, How do you win? What's the factors of success? Well, for uh, a statutory, reform, you really need the political moment to be running. You need one party controlling the legislature and the executive, and you need there to be political wins at the back of this particular reform, or You're just not going to get it, right? Um, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which I've referred to several times, you might be thinking, well, that's bipartisan. It didn't require one party or the other to be in control. Um, it was actually passed at a time when the Republicans controlled Congress both houses of Congress and the, uh, and the presidency, it's bipartisan in the sense that Democratic senators had a hand in, in shaping it, but it got through as easily as it did because there was one party government at that particular time. But also, it, the, the ideas in the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act were relatively rare in the sense that they actually, there was a bipartisan consensus that certain things were necessary. Oddly, of course, just because you get a bipartisan consensus doesn't necessarily mean the Supreme Court is going to agree that it's constitutional, obviously not. So you need a political moment, and that political moment requires uh, a strong majority and uh, sort of the the times to be right for that moment. For the direct democratic approach, all you need is a simple majority of the people, of voters. Way easy to get. Still hurdles, and we're gonna look at this as we move through uh, the term. We're gonna look at the hurdles of successful ballot measures. But uh, of the four avenues, it is absolutely the easiest one. But because of the single issue rule, it's very limited in its use. In fact, one of the um, political reforms that took place in the 90s in Oregon, as well as uh, other states, was uh, um, term limit initiatives. Uh, We had term limits that were passed in the early 1990s in Oregon based on uh, a a ballot measure, an initiative. But the state Supreme Court struck them down because the ballot measure actually limited the terms of state legislators and national representatives, in other words, our representatives uh, uh, to Congress. And the, the state Supreme Court said, that's two separate issues. So you would have needed two different ballot measures seems like a very technical kind of thing, and that's actually one of the annoying things about judicial review is it's often technical. Now, you would think that, okay, great, so the state court strikes down term limits, Um, uh, excuse me, the the specific term limit initiative that was passed pretty easily in Oregon uh, at the time, Um, why not just write two initiatives and put it on the next, uh, uh, put it on the ballot for the next uh, election, then you can get around that There's no rule that says you can't have five ballot measures or 10 or 50. There's no limit to the number of ballot measures. It's just that each measure itself has to have a single issue. The problem with that is that, yes, that's theoretically possible, is that the moment often will have to pass because the political moment applies also to direct democracy. Just because the people can write a ballot measure and it just requires a simple uh, majority of voters doesn't mean that you're always going to be able to get success there's a political moment factor to it as well. And by the time the Oregon State Supreme Court, and this happened in a lot of states, uh, had struck down the the term limit uh, um, ballot measures, there wasn't a whole lot of energy for term limits anymore. The early 90s was a period of political reform that was really focused on term limits. And what actually ended up happening is through the 90s in states that had imposed uh, term limits, through avenues uh, that uh, withstood court scrutiny, California did, did, did it through a legislative avenue and it withstood uh, court scrutiny, is that people are like, oh, yeah, I guess it's not such the fix-all we thought it was. It's, there's some pros and some cons to it. And so there was less energy to repass those ballot measures. So when you write a ballot measure, uh, you absolutely are paying attention to what the court's going to say, just like if you're writing a law. you don't want to, You don't want to succeed, do all this hard work, get your law passed, Have your political reform, have your party, and then five, ten years later go, oh fuck, shit, the the court struck it down, now we have to start from scratch. Um, And when you have to start from scratch the second time, it often is going to mean that it's an even taller hill to climb than it was the first time. So, direct democracy of the four avenues is the most powerful in the sense that it is the easiest, it is uh, open, you can, in all areas of, detail are open unlike the judicial avenue which kind of narrows to a, to a particularly small set but its applicability because of the single issue thing uh, is is going to be less however it is the avenue through which political reform is often most often the successful one so uh, it, it is you know if I had to rank like which of these avenues wins most often it's the avenue that wins the most often uh, okay moving back in this direction. Constitutions can be changed, right? And they're changed through amendment, or through rewriting the entire Constitution. But I'm not even going to put that up on the board, because even though that's generally a a, a way that political reform is achieved outside of the United States, uh, that is not a method that's really available, again, because of the tradition. Most states have constitutions that are way newer than the U.S. Constitution, um, but those constitutions are still now relatively old, like the, you know, Mississippi's most recent constitution is I think 1890, and that's pretty new, right? And I think it was the fourth or fifth constitution of Mississippi, but that's now still pretty old. And it's unlikely that any U.S. state is gonna write a brand new constitution here at this particular point in the early 21st century. So it's mostly through uh, amendment that's possible. now. This is where there is a great variability. How hard is it to do an amendment? Difficulty level. The difficulty level depends on the specific constitutional provisions for making amendments. At the federal level, it's extremely difficult. Two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states. That's a pretty big hurdle, and that's one of the reasons why we have so few uh, U.S. constitutional amendments, and we haven't had one in now going on 30 years. Um, <clears throat> and it seems unlikely that we're gonna have another one in the next decade or two, even though there's always ones that are proposed, flag burning, balanced budget, uh, you know, those are, the, those are the two big ones that I, could, that I can think of. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's very difficult. All of the states have different methods for amending the Constitution. And there's a pretty wide range. Some of the states have procedures that are either as difficult or very close to as difficult as amending the U.S. Constitution. Other states have uh, hurdles that are much closer to a regular statutory act. Oregon is actually one of those states where in order to change our Constitution, you can use an initiative. Uh, The only difference between a regular initiative and an initiative to pass a constitutional amendment is the, per, is the number of signatures you need to get it on the ballot. So Oregon is at the easier end of constitutional reform, and uh, a state like Florida is at the harder end of constitutional reform. Uh, in a future week, it might be next week, it might be the week after that, I would have to uh, check the syllabus to, to figure it out, but in a future week, I'm gonna survey uh, about um, 10, maybe a dozen of the states and go through the specific requirements that they have for amending their constitutions. And so you'll get a chance to see how much diversity there really is in this avenue. But, almost always, I shouldn't say almost always, always, it's harder to amend a constitution than it is to pass a law. In some cases, it's only moderately harder. As I say, Oregon is one of those states. In other cases, it's significantly harder. Um, What's great about the constitutional avenue is that once you do achieve your political reform through the constitutional avenue, you've basically won a permanent victory. Now again, it's not in theory it's not permanent because there could always be another amendment that gets rid of it, right? Um, but uh, it's the rare, even at the state level and certainly at the federal level, it's the rare amendment that ever, ever gets overturned, right? Um, we've had one amendment at the uh, federal level that's been overturned and that was prohibition and that was you know, probably not a very good experiment and the fact that it actually got over the giant hurdle to get into the Constitution in the first place is very surprising, and it was a rare confluence of, of uh, factors that probably will never be duplicated again. And then it was it was repealed actually relatively easily and relatively quickly. That's totally the the outside the norm. We shouldn't really expect that probably to ever happen again. Uh, states sometimes will pass amendments that get overturned uh, because some states have easier methods of uh, changing their constitution. The easier the method, the more likely it is to get overturned. But It's always more fixed than the statutory level uh, because there's always some procedure that's a little bit harder than just the regular law writing process. So it's the tallest mountain to climb, but it's the best one because it is where you you, you get a victory and you have your party and then you're done. You're not looking over your shoulder, right? If you pass a law, and you've got to be waiting for Judicial Review to review this. Part of the reason why it's permanent is because when you make a constitutional change through this avenue, Judicial Review is not going to come along and take away that change. Because Judicial Review is based on the constitutional provisions, right? The question is, does it align with the Constitution? Well, when you change the Constitution, Judicial Review has to change along with it. Supreme Court justices can't say, no, 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 we don't like that amendment. We don't like that. Amendment. that, 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 we don't like that. Even if it seems to conflict with the rest of the Constitution, the court will have to take it into account. Um, But when you make a clear change that doesn't conflict with anything else, the courts just have to accept that and move on. When you make a change in law, the courts have uh, a foot in the door in in doing that. So just to review very quickly here, four different avenues, and I'll go through them from uh, hardest to easiest, but also from uh, uh, most powerful to least powerful. Hardest constitution amendment. Most powerful because you can have a fundamental change and you can have one that is, for all intents and purposes, permanent, and that forecloses this avenue of changing that reform. Um, Second most difficult is the statutory through the legislature itself. Uh, Sort of second and a half would be the referendum because the referendum requires uh, the uh, legislature to to write a bill and then to pass it along to the people very powerful though and actually almost as powerful as the constitutional level not because you get a permanent change but because you can write you can create details right constitutional changes are so rare and they're also at a high level of abstraction typically right when you go through the statutory realm you can make a very detailed complex ch- policy change to the political system and uh, um, fill in a lot of details and even though it's difficult to get it through both houses and to get it signed by either the governor or the president uh, It is the one where you can actually do a ton. So it is really I have a, I have a star here And I'll put another star. It's kind of the gold standard of getting things done Even though it's the second most difficult and a close second third uh, most difficult is the judicial uh, realm and it's 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 way easier but it's also limited. There are only certain kinds of political reforms you can achieve through this avenue, and you have to have, while you only need five justices, you have to have an alignment of what those justices are like in terms of how they see precedent and how they view the Constitution with your own particular desire to reform. You can't always have that. Um, And then the fourth, the easiest, but the least powerful, is direct democracy through the initiative. It's the least powerful because it has to be single issue, and... Uh, that means there's not a. If you want to make a lot of complex changes to the political system, or even just a couple complex changes, you're going to have to have multiple ballot measures. Um, the direct democratic route, the initiative, is the one that is the most successful. Judicial is most is a close second, most successful. Statutory is very rare. It's very rare to get a major political reform out of the statutory realm. Constitutional is uh, the uh, the least common. So those are the four avenues. Those are the dynamics, those are the factors of success, those are the opportunities and the limitations uh, that uh, these different avenues uh, open up. Next week, and the following week I believe it is, I'm going to drill down into each of these avenues uh, um, more specifically by looking at specific cases and elaborating even further on the ideas that I've laid out here uh, about why certain things are easy or difficult. Particularly, I'm gonna talk about how uh, Judicial review functions as an avenue of political reform because it's it's the one that's the most sort of Technical and strange the other three are democracy right majority rules majority rules supermajority rules in the court majority rules But it's the 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 dynamics of how the majority gets to where it gets are a little bit more complicated And so we're gonna we're gonna drill down into that next week and in the following week uh, and I guess that's it so Alright, uh, I always find it a little odd to wrap up these videos because there's not the end of a class period. You're like, alright, you guys have to go, but honestly, you guys have to go. Bye.